They dyed a poodle bright red. Cage is on a power trip. Last 30 seconds, I think the stress of that whole start and recording thing, I'm now sweating again. <laughs> oh, no. I watched a bit of this film last night, and then I decided that I was going to stay up until about half three oh. in the morning, playing Sid Meier's Civilization. Oh, Sid Six, yeah, fair enough. And just drinking by myself. Oh, gosh. <laughs> Which is a, How do you yeah. sound more chipper than me? I mean, I had a late night, but not compared to well, that. Well, I've, I've been out for a run, so I'm a lot better than I was. Oh, I've the just, endorphins I just had a shower, kicked in. My, um, yeah, so... Mentally, I'm feeling there, but my voice where I've just run, I forgot to take any hay fever tablets, and I've basically just run face first with my fucking eyes and mouth wide open into <laughs> all of the pollen of the new forest. That's my running technique too. It's not less to do with the legs. It's actually better for you because it makes your wind resistance harder, so you've really got to work <laughs> the legs a bit more. Well, this is it. I've already shaved in the little go-faster stripes into my eyebrows. <laughs> that was that was step one. You must look hard as hell. Then I just went, run it, mate. I, it's, it's, it's a good look. <laughs> I've literally sat here in trackies and a sweaty white shirt even though I've already had the shower it's just pure alcohol sweats at this point it even smells of the peach beers this is disgusting I feel like this is going to be like a four shower day you'll be pleased to know I've got some very good news to start today's episode with oh, I can't wait I need I need a pick me up I even need a pick me up or another drink same thing exclusive oh no national treasure Disney plus series no. is in development no a series this is what we said about the idea of um you know he's not, he's doing the Tiger King series. Is this actually going to be including Nick? So this is this is the interesting point, and I I am speculating, and we'll get more into this as I read you an article I have right before me from Collider.com about this. But uh, Jerry Buckenheimer, who is of course the director of the other two, they got him to open up his book of secrets and give a new update on the <laughs> National Treasure <laughs> franchise. He's got his own book of secrets. I love this. <laughs> Jerry Buckenheimer's book of secrets. Has he got his own Declaration of Independence? <laughs> Buckenheimer goes on to say there will be, in fact, a National Treasure 3, which is currently in development, as well as a Disney Plus TV series, which is also in development. So we are going to see Nick go for the hat trick. It looks like it, because presumably they wouldn't that, do a that, film that without him. It doesn't work without A me. series I can imagine without him, and it'll be like National Treasure Kids or whatever. It'll be Zac Efron. Yeah, let's be let's real. Be, let's be honest. He's, he's in everything. He needs to come back. He, needs to go, he did the Ted Bundy thing, and now he needs to come back as Ben Franklin, or whatever his name was. I think that's right. Right, yes, Ben Franklin. Sure. <laughs> um, oh, sorry, I made a mistake here. Jerry Buckenheimer will be the director for these, but you'll be very pleased to know <laughs> the oh no, the writer. I don't of like that laugh. Chris Bremner. Chris Bremner, who was the writer for Bad Boys for Life, is attached. Oh, all right, yeah. <laughs> Consider me interested. They're still in the script writing process. Uh, it goes on to... I've not actually read this part, so we're going to learn together. The National Treasure movie is both directed by Tattletub... Tattletub? <laughs> John Turtletaub. Turtletaub. <coughs> <laughs> yeah, that's how nice. it made me feel trying to pronounce yeah, it. Yeah, that, that does look like Turtletaub. John Turtletaub, yeah. He directed both the other two, and it follows a historian and occasional heist mastermind, Benjamin Franklin Gates. Oh my God, you were right. You know, he was uh, <laughs> he was also the director of Cool Runnings. Oh my gosh. What a legend. <laughs> what, yeah, what a legend. legend. 
I'm looking hero. At, looking at the kind of things that he's done, and that's just absolutely fantastic. So he did like cool runnings, like a National Treasure. Did two episodes of that Jericho series, Book of Secrets. He did the Sorcerer's Apprentice, which we're going to see. Oh wow! So yeah, him and Cage are tight, presumably. Oh, he did. Um, he did. He did the pilot of the Rush Hour series that went straight to Amazon Prime. That was utterly utterly bin bag oh i don't know anything about that wow yeah it's better not to know about it to be honest i did a binge of all of the rush hour films last year and then <laughs> yes, at the end sick. of it was just like yeah why not oh you needed more <laughs> yeah I need, I need more you know you know when you think right so after rush hour three obviously it's like 10 years after or something and you think oh this is like a nice little novelty but you're very aware that those two characters can't be anyone other than um jackie chan and is it eddie murphy not eddie murphy it's is it Chris Tucker? Shit, I don't know. It turns out I've not seen... I always thought it was Eddie Murphy in those films. That's Beverly Hills Cop. Shit. With Judge Judge Reinhold. Yeah, it's Chris Tucker with Jackie Chan. Oh, right. Yeah, it turns out I haven't seen them in a while. It's so... You, you can't make any content of Rush Hour without them because it's such a funny on-screen relationship. But then you go into, like, they've tried really hard to recast it, not subtly, and it's not okay. Oh, dear. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, we've got into Rush Hour and speculation of films and series that haven't been made yet, and we've not even touched on today, where we're in for an absolute treat of Nick Cage's directing debut. What a journey. Also, the end of his directing career. (laughs) And straight out the gates, did this film, did that give you an answer to why that was or raise more questions for you? A little bit of both. I think I don't think that he's cut out to be a director. I think he has it in him. I just don't think he wants it. I th- I think that coming off of this, I think that he has bits that he can offer. But I don't. I don't know. It, this was it, it, it's it's a very classic Cage choice of script. I I, re- I ended up watching some like hour interview of him talking about this. Oh great! I, I I've seen a few, but I didn't I didn't really get around to watching them. There, there wasn't a huge. A lot of it was kind of fan questions asking about other films. But the main things I took away from this is that this is a script that was sent to Nick about eight years prior that he was desperate to be in. Mm. He wanted to play the lead, but he could never find a director to attach to it. So when the op the offer came in for Nick to direct a film. He went back and reread the script and was still just completely in love with it and was like, I'm going to make this film. I could totally imagine that entire scene playing out of him getting this and loving it. Yeah. Well, I'll tell you what, before we go any further talking about this, do you want to give us a quick synopsis of this film, Ben? Yeah. Okay. So, yeah, that, it was... I mean, I obviously couldn't help watch the whole thing through the lens of Nick Cage directed this. There was a, re- a reason for that. Yes, that's something that I was going to bring up in a bit because... There's two very different views I have on this based on us watching this in the context of this podcast and through the lens of Nick and me watching it as just another film. Okay, well... But we'll we'll, we'll touch on that in a moment. So, I mean, this story, I was quite affected by this. It was a really sad story. Yeah. Genuinely really heartbreaking, though it's never really presented in that way. Cage never decides to ham that angle up of it, but at its core, it was just, like, quite devastating. It's a story about being trapped in a cycle effectively james franco starts stars as the lead in this and this film at the very beginning sees him coming back from serving in the army he is the son of a mother who runs a brothel and his whole life prior to the army it's it's not made clear how long away he's there for but he's 26 when he gets back we can assume maybe he was there for a week but anyway he spent a lot of his early life presumably in his teens and early 20s working for his mum as a male prostitute and he comes back i think it's safe to say that he uh he grew up watching eight millimeter with his parents yes i think this is the, the relationship you end up growing yeah which is <laughs> shocking for me as you can imagine the writing's all on the walls he, 
absolutely bragged about watching porn of his dad. <laughs> so at its core, this is a story about a young man coming back and wanting to start a new life and go against the grain and not be the person that everyone thinks he is. But he is trapped in the rigor of the role of that of coming back to New Orleans where he grew up and everyone only knowing him for that thing and try as he might to break away from that it's the universe and everyone he knows seems to be pointing and forcing him back in that direction and man it, it was heartbreaking quite frankly like it's a difficult one yeah he's desperate to get out of this there's like a love interest between him and uh, a female prostitute where they're just trying to just get out of this world they don't want to be a part of it anymore but the more he kind of sinks in to this it's it's not a comfort, but it's kind of all he knows. Yeah, and it's, and it's, it's really sad. But um, you know, you're not meant to hate people you work with, so well, shouldn't have gone there in the first place. Yeah, so you don't shit where you eat, <laughs> and you don't shag where you sleep. Wait, I think you do. I'll have to double check on that one. But. Okay, yeah, get back to me on that. <laughs> but that's sort of the story. We we follow James Franco's development here as he and the characters associated with him. Is his mother is a big part in it. Was it? Caroline, her name was the uh, the female prostitute. His love interest in this, uh, Carol. Carol. Carol, and then Henry, I believe his name was, which is sort of his mother's lover, who it turns out later in the film listed as Jules Man. Ooh, Jules Man, <laughs> but it turns out he's the family Jules because this is James Franco's father all along, but he's been keeping that card particularly close to his chest because Jules feels like he is a big failure and he doesn't want to be set the example for for young James in this. Yeah. It was it was a film where it's it's very character based and there are a few sort of set pieces and things but mainly through watching this it was I think if I didn't know Nick Cage had directed it I reckon I could have taken a guess at it because there are so many it was like Nick Cage bingo throughout this and I wrote down so many things that he has done in other films or ways that he has acted before or just tropes from from films he's been in the, in the past like it was evident he had learned a certain way uh, or self-taught a lot I guess a certain way to do things and put that on screen did you have a similar thing I got that exactly but from the not so much just I, I think it's important to bring up the casting of this because I was skeptical of how Franco would portray this but you can kind of tell this is a very young James Franco. Yeah. And this is Nicolas Cage via James Franco. Absolutely. You can tell that that's where the direction is. And some of the, it's so bizarre watching. I think we saw it in another film. I can't remember which one it was now where someone else tried to like out Cage Cage and it's just awkward to watch. But um, this this very much is like, a, it's, it's so weird seeing someone else take on Cage's style of acting and seeing what they can draw from it. And I'd go as far as to say that I think this has probably had a huge effect on Franco's acting career and the choices that he makes because he's someone that's known for taking these really strange roles. Mm. And I wonder how much of that you could attribute to, 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 to working with Cage at this point. I really couldn't help but wonder a bit more about, unfortunately, known scumbag James Franco, but he... He's got a fascinating career because he's done some like really challenging, interesting roles early on in his career. And then at one point, he just, I guess, met Seth Rogen and became a stoner and then just did all these like lazy buddy comedies, which, don't get me wrong, were entertaining for the most part, but like a really different pace from where he got started there. So he'd be quite an interesting person just to view a career of. But I mean, I'm not very interested in doing it, but couldn't help but wonder. And quite right, as you just said, 
it's fascinating to know what impact Cage had on this. Like, it's pretty presumably early in Franco's career here. Yeah, I was just looking down to see it. So he does this after in the same year. The two things that um, oh god, the two films before this, he made a film called "You Always Stalk the Ones You Love." <laughs> Jesus Christ, Franco. Yeah. After um, after that same year again, he played a skateboarder guy in Mother Ghost. <laughs> <laughs> and then went into Sunny the same year that he played Harry Osborne in the first Spider-Man film. Fuck yeah, shit, you're right. Yeah. Wow, these came out the same year. Well, there you go. That's that's a classic one for them, one for me move, isn't it? Yeah. Wow. Uh, let's talk a bit more about. Well, there's there's two ways that we can really look at Sunny, which we just watched here, because of course Cage directs, but he also stars in the film. Now, should we go on to talk about Acid Yellow now, or should we save that for pudding? I think save that for pudding, because then we can come on to a kind of shorter version of Cage Match. Um, let's let's go in on this film for a moment whilst we're still fresh on on the story and things like that. Okay. As I think there's there are bits that we can take out from this that I think are interesting, but one thing. I do want to touch it. I, I want to know what your thoughts were, your two opinions on this as watching this as a film blind and watching this film as, uh, you know, going in knowing that this is a Nick Cage directing debut. It was hard to separate the art from the artist, so to speak. And I'm yeah. so trained at this point to watch pretty much any film and assume that Nick Cage has had, he's either on the screen or he's nearby, you know. Uh, and in this, yeah, I, honestly, to me, it was just like, it was comical that it was checking off things he'd done in the past. I've got a couple of things here that I just want to to go through that maybe you noticed also that will make you <laughs> see why it was such a caged film. Of course, there's uh, driving through the desert in a sports car montage. Yep. Done that before. <laughs> there was uh, a bunch of dogs on the screen. He loves that. Footage of neon lights, military themes. There's a bit with a car dealership, like we saw with Little Junior Brown, a similar scene. Doing quite different things, but there we go. There's an abundance of sex scenes. Yeah, I mean, it couldn't be a Cage film without a very long, uncomfortable lovemaking scene. Yeah, it wouldn't have been a Nick Cage film without James Franco's ass. (laughs) (laughs) It's set in New Orleans, where, of course, we know Cage has been to a bunch of times, and maybe at this point even owns property. There's even bits of the script where it felt like Cage had been like, this is what you do it. The first time we see Franco have a freak out. And he ha- he has a couple, like, yeah. credit where it's due. Like, doing that in front of Nick Cage, a man who is, of course, known for this, can't have been... It must have been quite a tall order. That would be a huge challenge, especially early in your career as well, against an Oscar-winning guy who f- literally freaks out for uh, Yeah, exactly. But I feel like this is one of the first times Franco did that. So Cage probably gave him a lot of advice. And there's a point where he says... There's a scene where Franco is trying to reintegrate himself into normal life and he essentially goes on his first ever date with a girl and they end up having sex together. And again, a really heartbreaking bit where he is a hot man cursed with the ability to be a phenomenal lay where after the fact she sighs and looks at him and says, oh, you should do that for a living. And he has this great reaction on his face where he's like, I guess now's the moment I I tell her. Now's the moment of all to stop lying. Like like I said, this is a film of really intense lows, but not really any highs. Yeah, but uh, the lows a lot of the time are strangely normalised, not unlike in a film like Bringing Out Your Dead, where it's it's just part of who this character is, so they don't really even bat their eyelid at it. The lowest moments only come when they're trying to go against the grain of that. Again, not unlike Bringing Out Your Dead, where he's trying to quit, and those are the moments where he realises how 
how bleak the whole thing is. A lot of the direction and the kind of mood and things like this, there's a lot you can kind of compare almost to Leaving Las Vegas, which you can't fault Nick for, Mm -hmm. considering it's his most successful film as an actor, for trying to kind of recreate that kind of gritty, somber, just like really uncomfortable tone throughout. Yeah, exactly. I mean, there's a drinking montage, there's an emotional strolling through the street drunk montage. These are all things he's done before, but obviously never more so than in leaving Las Vegas. But I think the problem with this and having Nick direct, and that's one of the flaws that I found in it as well, is that it almost leans too much into these things. Whereas when you're getting a Nick Cage performance, there's a lot you can take from it in terms of, I don't want to say originality. We, we know he wears his influence on his sleeves and he can always he's always been very accepting of that and he acknowledges the people that he kind of borrows from. But he is his own actor, if you know what I mean. This doesn't necessarily film like his own film. Okay, that's an interesting point. This, I, I don't, I think that it's, it's very, it feels very borrowed. I don't know, I don't know how to word this correctly, but this didn't feel, and this is what I mean. Like you have to, I, I, watching this through the eyes of, of, of Nick Cage, thinking this is his directing debut. This is fantastic. If he's never done this before, this is, this is really good. But when you put it up against another film of the genre. Would it hold? Would it stand its ground? Okay, that's an interesting point. And that's when that's when I start to, to really question this because I think the casting of this is brilliant to a point. But I just think there's moments... Yeah, I don't know. Some of the performances seemed a bit laboured to me. I think all James Franco's stuff goes down pretty well but i think that's because cage was focusing so much energy granted he's the titular character but yeah. i think cage focuses so much energy on Wait, when i say that i mean mostly um james franco and brenda is it a bleffin who plays his his mother jewel yeah i thought those two really really great they had that perfect uncomfortable relationship and i i thought they were brilliant there's a lot of the rest of the acting this is what i mean where i find it to be quite hit and miss the problem with making these really dark and kind of consistently uncomfortable films is that it can literally take a half second moment to break it and then all of a sudden you're not in that world anymore and that's what kept us so captivated in leaving las vegas is that there's not a single moment in that where the acting breaks there's not there's not someone that kind of takes away from that everyone's on the same page of what the outcome of this is going to be Whereas this feels a little bit conflicted after a while. And I feel like you lose a lot of the kind of undertones to this film. The kind of feel of it gets lost amongst uh, the different characters. For me, the only moments where I, the immersion was sort of broken, obviously apart from every time I went, oh, this is a case decision, (laughs) was a lot of the scenes, particularly at the beginning of the movie, with the mother, I felt I could really feel Cage's direction on her that she sort of constantly goes from zero to a hundred yeah. and is very inconsistent with her accent. <laughs> and I was like, "That's Cage all over." <laughs> it's obviously a risk putting someone British in a film like this because it's not a difficult, uh, it's not an easy accent to try and just muster up. And I, I admittedly, yeah, the accents aren't particularly fantastic, but I, I don't know. I just really enjoyed that dynamic between her and Franco. You can tell that it's like a mother and son. The way that they're, like I said, they're both zero to a hundred. It's almost like a bipolar esque kind of relationship that they they have with each other, where they're both so uh, you you could you can just tell that so many of his traits are hers. Yeah. Okay. And I I, I found that to be quite quite an interesting dynamic. But um, it's not not to cast any shade on the other actors. There are there are some standout ones, but um. Also, I think Nicolas Cage being in this film, I feel like that was a kind of cash cow move, just to kind of get people to watch it i don't really think it added anything if anything it kind of i i hate to say it but i I do feel like it kind of cheapened it a little 
I feel like that was kind of a, you know, if you're going into directing, direct. If you have to do this, then you're probably not ready to direct. I saw an interview with him after we watched Captain Studio Girl's Time Travelling Mandolin. He says that his favourite types of stories are love stories and that he even mentions that I'd love to one day go on to direct one. Do you think that's what he was trying to achieve with this? Oh, 100%. Do you think this is a love story at its core? Yeah, definitely. It's a very troubled love story between Sonny and Carol and how, you know, it's it's it's, it's not so like uh, dissimilar from other films that we've seen Cage be in, as you've brought up. The storyline's just very exaggerated because of the circumstances. Yeah, but it wouldn't be a Cage film without that. Yeah. I mean, I've got to say for me, this film started about 25 minutes in when they started playing Rush on the cast area. Yes, yeah, me too. <laughs> There's some bangers on the soundtrack in this. Oh, the soundtrack's one of the one of the absolute highlights of this. It's absolutely incredible. Like I said, there's there's moments of this when I think Cage has done fantastic here for a debut, but then there's other moments where I just think first film. And I I think it's it's a really difficult contrast when you're this far into your career and it's it's never gonna be and I feel like this is probably why he hasn't come back to it. Not because he hasn't got the skills to do it, but because it's almost impossible to start, you know, cutting your teeth as a director when for one, your uncle made The Godfather and two, you've won an Oscar for acting. So the spotlight is on you and whatever you do is going to be paramount to the press. Nick Cage has had all the help in the world getting to this point with being family friends with Scorsese, being related to Coppola. And obviously, like, I'm sure he spent plenty of time with Spielberg and the gang growing up. It's probably not with Crispin. <laughs> probably not with Crispin. There are some good moments in this, but... With someone that's had that much of a boost, you almost expect something a little more. Yeah, I, I know I know what you mean, and that's that's kind of what I took from this. Is I think at face value, I enjoyed it. I expected more because of the casting and the, you know, because it is Cage and because you know his contacts. But at the end of the day, if this is his first time making it, it's good. It's good for what it is. But is it good enough to just say it's good for what it is when it has this kind of um i don't know what kind of hype i had around it but obviously it's got this kind of cast it's got this isn't a small film speaking of casts the one person from nick cage's past that he decided to bring back for this film was only fucking tony cataracts is back <laughs> of all the people he picks this guy who's turned up in two of his other movies for a side character that really doesn't end, lend a whole lot to the story at all, but I feel like he just owed Nick a favour. I mean, clearly, clearly just pals. Yeah, <laughs> we speculated that Tony Cataracts was following him film to film to keep an eye on him to get revenge for him stealing Jessica, Sarah Jessica Parker back, but I think <laughs> Nick was like, listen man, I'll put you in my film if you leave me alone. The debt is repaid. Let's talk about Nick Cage in this film, shall we? Mm. Should we? You and I were both aware that he was in this film and he plays a character called Acid Yellow. And much like myself, you probably busted out the binoculars and expected him to pop up at one point or another. This is probably the longest we've ever had to wait for Cage to actually materialise on screen. I mean, it's, it's a pretty fantastic reveal. And then he talks. And then I was just immediately just, I was out of the film. Oh, yeah. This is honestly, it just normalised the entire thing. And Cage can do whatever he wants in this. He's not battling with the director and he does that. He goes full classic Nick Cage weirdo character. But this is one of the ones that it really didn't benefit from. It felt very weirdly forced. No, this is the thing. is the, for, for everything Franco's going through in this film, he finds a way to normalise it and make it almost... Uh, obviously, it's never going to be relatable to people like us. 
but you, it kind of finds the humanity in it, which I do find to be relatable. You know, the emotions that he plays on. Cage comes in and it's like he comes in and tries to steal the show. Yeah. And it just fucking killed the film. It's so strange because usually you'd watch something like that and go, okay, that was a strange choice by the director, whatever. But in this, like, that obviously isn't a problem. He made that decision and went through it and no one could tell him otherwise. You see so many times, like, directors that love to make little cameos in their film, like Tarantino or anything like that, or, like, little, like, bits of voice acting and stuff like that. I'm fine with that. But you need to know your place. Well, the problem is that he gets to decide his place. Yeah. But when he comes in and he tries to out-act the lead and try to steal the scene when, let's be honest, he's nothing more than a background character. It adds nothing to the narrative of the story. No, it takes so much away. You could take that scene out and nothing would change. So it was just Cage deciding he wanted a double paycheck. But I don't know if it's even that. I, I wonder if it was uh, if we list you as an actor and get you in this film in some way that it will have more traction. And this is this Starring is what I, Nick yeah, Cage. And I wonder if this is what I was saying is like if you have to do that at this point, are you ready to be directing if this is what you have to do in order to I could be wrong on this, but I can't see any reason why if we're going down the what were you thinking route, mm. this is what I'd play on is why would you put yourself in this film other than to draw in people who wouldn't necessarily want to watch a film about a male prostitute. Would you tell me a little bit more about the character Acid Yellow? Uh, How are we introduced to him? I mean <sighs> I try to remember, to be honest. I just, I just remember. It being, sounds like you really didn't like the no, guy. I just remember being. It wasn't. If if this was another film, I would have found this hilarious. Like it is a really funny character, and I love it when Cage pops up and just steals the film from someone. Yoink. But you have to kind of, you know, what I mean, when it's his film and he's he's just literally just shat on himself here. He's absolutely shit the best. So let's talk a bit about how we first meet Acid Yellow. This is off the back of Frank Oaks finding out that who his real father was, but too late because his father's just died. Again, very Nick Cage sequence there where someone gets a turn for the best and then just gets hit by a truck and explodes immediately. Yeah, of course. Outrageous. Outrageous direction. So, so silly. But anyway. Well, he, he's, he's aware of what happens if you just cycle into a stationary truck. So <laughs> so he's like, if the truck's moving and you're moving, presumably explosion immediately. <laughs> Franco goes on a bender, does a lot of bar crawling and then winds up at the front door of this character called Acid Yellow. He buzzes through to security. Security goes to go check, says it's fine. Franco walks in. Then we see, for the first time, Acid Yellow. Tell me about what we're working with visually here. Oh, God. I, I'm trying to piece together my last night because I was, obviously, like I say, this is quite late into the film. And for me, this was quite late into the morning. Oh, shit, of course. I, I was fucking wasted, Ben, which uh, doesn't, <laughs> it doesn't help it doesn't help scenarios. I mean, a lot of the shots in this that we see Nick Cage through are point-of-view shots of a very drunk James Franco, so it's all shot okay, weird... Okay, good. That's one thing that I was worried about, that maybe I was just... No, don't worry. It's all with, like a blurry-edged, <laughs> wide-angle lens we see. So he looks even more ludicrous. Yeah, I mean, if, if my, I remember thinking he's wearing some sort of yellow shirt and has this horrible moustache. And... A bright yellow suit. He's got a massive fake nose on, yet again, the calling card <laughs> of Do Your Own Character for Nick Cage. And he's got this big, bright, white pair of teeth in there. I remember when he first came on, obviously, I'm glad now it's doing, I know it's doing the drunk ham thing. The um, version I find this, I found this really difficult to find online to watch. So the version that I ended up watching was like really kind of shaky anyway. 240p, one headphone. Uh, yeah, oh, mate, it was like the frame rate for mine was just really low. 
so I could kind of see it just staggering through like it was constantly buffering. Yeah, really tricky film to find. When you're already drunk, that's giving you a headache at the best of times. <laughs> and I remember when this scene came about and I, I just had to just, just lie down and just stare at the ceiling because I was like, this isn't okay. I, so, <laughs> just listen. Yeah, so and I was just listening and that's why I picked out that line of just when he was like, cut his face. So I was just like, this is just completely ridiculous. I I don't I don't think I needed to see it all to know that it was a bad move. Like when I first saw it and I just saw that fucking mustache, nose and yellow fucking whatever it was. I was like, no, I'm I'm out. It was like if they'd done a character of the mask on Bo Selector. Oh god, what a horrible image. Yeah, it was disgusting, quite frankly. And like I say, it just added nothing. There was just this large woman sat beside him just shoveling cocaine to him he kept shouting but again doing a stupid voice and just kept shouting how much he loved cocaine and how great it was to see J- James Franco again and Franco's just there because he wants to earn some money and uh, sleep with a man and Cage's character Acid Yellow is there to facilitate that however it turns out Franco just wanted to fight someone so he starts beating the shit out of this man who comes in to try and have sex with James Franco. What a heel turn. I'd be gutted. (laughs) (laughs) Next thing you know, Cage is in there and he's apologising. He's hugging this poor man that's been beaten up. And then he gets one of his bright blonde mullet-wielding accomplices to grab Franco and he's trying to get him to cut his face. And then out of nowhere... Acid Yellow pulls out a sword. <laughs> yeah, it's just completely ridiculous. Like, I don't know why... If you watch that scene on its own, it'd be funny, but put in that film and put right at the end of the emotional climax of that film. That is the reaction sequence to Franco finding out who his real dad is and that he found out too late because he's dead. The only person that really supported him for being who he wants to be in his life is dead. That's the reaction sequence to put in... Nick Kay is just having a funny five. So Ugh. I've just looked it up so I can actually refresh myself to exactly how this guy looked like. I can't work out if he's got a mustache or it's just this horrible like handlebar shadow. But oh my, it just the way he just looks horrible. He's like giving himself this recede, receding hairline, which is just fucking. It looks like if you were playing Guess Who and just said, "Does he look like a shitlord?" <laughs> that's what you're. That's that's who you're left with. Yeah, he uh... like this, this guy. He looks like a fucking creepier Louis C.K. It just that that hair is fucking awful. I, I honestly it makes me it's it might be the hangover talking, but this uh, looking at it makes me feel unwell. Credit where it's due though. Acid Yellow seems like quite a good dude. Perfectly sweet. He helps James Franco, who's clearly stuck in a rut out. I mean, he's shoveling down cocaine, but I don't think that makes you more or less likable. It's just not great. He loves coke. And he's he's got a sword. So I'm on on the on on the Eddie scale. I wouldn't go on a night out with him. Or would I? He also has a bright red poodle. <laughs> All right, yeah, yeah. He's come back around. I maybe would hang out with this guy. They dyed a poodle bright red to have it in the background <laughs> of a shot in this film. Cage is on a power trip. But again, the, the rest of the film is very restrained and it's very within the boundaries of reality. Whereas this scene, it just goes weird. Even the way it's shot is suddenly much weirder. It, it looks like it's from a completely different film and it was... Very weird, and the fact that Cage directed it is boggling. But here we are. Originally, when we were talking about how this came about and how originally Cage wanted this role, originally they wanted to give this role to Richard Gere about eight years prior, but he ended up doing... Richard Gere shoveling gear. I'm already thinking he did American Gigolo. 
Oh. He did that in, in, instead of this. I don't want to become typecast if I do two in a row. Well, I think it was like the same year that this this could have been when um, that's when this was originally going to be made. Mm. But yeah, there's there's one for the gearheads out there. And that brings me on to something that I wanted to try and revive very quickly for you because I know a lot of people have been asking about it. Oh, okay. And um, I think we uh, we kind of shot our load quite early on in this podcast with uh, how, how, many, uh, how many of these we can really get away with. So we've been trying to spread them out, but I feel like it's something that got lost in the last few weeks. So I wanted to uh, bring you back with a little cage fact. <gasps> oh, I've been a good boy. I deserve this. I'm, I'm going to tie it in with one of my favourite things, which is asking you to guess things as well, because it just made, <laughs> I love it so much. Everyone's favourite thing. <laughs> yeah. Nick Cage is thinking of a number right now between one and a million. One million. Easy. <laughs> of course. <laughs> so I found in an interview with Nicolas Cage where he was asked about what he would say his spirit power animal would be. He lists three different animals. Okay, greedy. I like it. Yeah. <laughs> I would like you to guess or speculate over what spirit animal you think Nick might have chosen. One of them most certainly is a heat-seeking panther. <laughs> Unfortunately, this is a different interview, <laughs> but uh, but I, I, I appreciate the reference. Uh, let's think. He is Komodo dragon. Mm. He is a white tiger. Mm. And he is a bald eagle. I can't believe you just got all three. That is absolutely right, Ben. Spot on. He chose a California grey whale, a monica lizard, <laughs> and dog. <laughs> no specific just dog dog the monica lizard I, I kind of saw coming from the tattoo but california gray whale yeah that's that's a curveball i'm searching this now but it's one of those things that sounds weird enough that i feel like i'm typing in something that's going to lead me to like lemon party california gray whale okay so it's basically just a big whale <laughs> yeah i didn't need to google that to be honest I was, my, uh, my my thoughts were correct if you're thinking of a of a big whale that's that's more or less it Oh, this is, I found a... There's a very specific picture that I think you'll you'll enjoy. Hmm, okay. Just opening the... <laughs> <laughs> this... What? <laughs> this is a water-bearing mammal version of Sergeant Steel Your Girl. Nick Cade saw this and went, that's a bit of me. Weirdly enough... I'm looking at it side by side with another picture of Nick Cage I have on my screen. He's my desktop wallpaper at this point. Of course. And it... It does have a bit of a striking it's resemblance, right. weirdly, in the forehead region. Yeah. This is like It's pulling you... one of those classic cage faces as well. This is Cage in the bath. <laughs> this is him hanging out with um with his octopus. Wow, okay. Yeah, this is who pops in for a cuddle with Jonathan. And this is what happens. This is, he's just got some great acting notes and he's gonna go and try them out. I'm with sure his... he looked into purchasing one of these at one point. There's no bridge too far for this man. Listen, Daniel, let's wrap this up, but there's something we need to do before we do that. We need to lower this big hexagonal monster and begin another round of Cage Match, baby. So entering the cage match today, we have returning champion Memphis Range after Joe Enders gracefully bowed out of the competition yesterday, facing down against the versatile Acid Yellow. <laughs> this is going to be an interesting one. It will be. Let's start off proceedings with strength. As we know, Memphis Reigns does not really display his strength a lot. Not a huge amount. Also, doesn't own a sword. Yeah, I think the sword definitely gives you a plus one, doesn't it? A plus five, I would have said. I think that's one nil. I think that's one nil, that's yellow. Has sword. (laughs) Has sword. Congrats. It's a concealed sword as well, so he's got a, a sneak advantage there. How do you conceal a whole sword as well? It's fantastic. 
Let's go into agility straight off the back of that because I feel like this is going to tie it up probably because we don't see Acid Yellow for enough to really get an idea of... He doesn't seem that agile. No, no. He like does seem to live on a diet of cocaine, which was very within Deddy's wheelhouse, but we've seen Cage do his own action driving in this and he jumps over that ramp. You have to remember, Memphis Reigns can come in 60 seconds and if that's not agile, I don't know what is, Ben. <laughs> that's a tired game. <laughs> Next up, we're moving on to likability. And these two characters are likable in very different ways. Memphis Reigns is a criminal. He's a car thief. But he clearly has done some good in the past because he's able to bring his friends back to help him out at the drop of a hat. However, Acid Yellow, he helps out a friend in need at that moment, granted through slightly nefarious means. Mm. But he does carry a sword and subsist on a diet of cocaine. So it's difficult to know. They're both, they're both kind of bad guys doing a good thing. Yeah, but right. I think I think the gooder thing is Jack Campbell because he doesn't have to do it. He comes back specifically to help, and he's already got himself out of that life. Whereas Acid Yellow is still living it. Wait, who the fuck's Jack Campbell? Sorry, um, he was from the Family Man. <laughs> <laughs> back from the dead. <laughs> Did he die? That's what happens at the end of the cage match. Oh, right, yeah. We cut that part because it's quite grim. But yeah, the people who lose get killed. <laughs> yeah, the hangover still said, I've, I've started my fourth sweat. Uh-oh. <laughs> I think you're right. Really, on likability, uh, in terms of a night out, I'd be worried to go out with Acid Yellow. I'd, but that I, does bring this very interestingly to the next two because I've, <laughs> I've kind of thought this for a little bit ahead and I'm a bit worried what's going to happen here because <laughs> let's be honest, we've not seen someone who can beat Memphis Reigns because of his leather jacket on, on, on how he looks on Lord of War Factor. Leather jacket, tiny sunglasses, peroxide hair. But, but if we're, talking, if we're looks, talking looks, how could you possibly lose when you look like Acid Yellow? I know because no one, I've never seen anyone that looks like that before, and that's quite a, a statement. It's, there's no way. I don't think there's. We have to. We've already spoken enough about his look on this. Let's just call it for what it is. This is two all. This is two all with the final round of Cage. And blimey, and, what a round yeah, to go into! That's uh, difficult <laughs> because Acid Yellow is from start to finish cage being cage in a cage he film it might be the most pure expression of nick cage yeah this is the most cage we've seen since deadfall but it's such a short burst does it really contend with an entire film of memphis range who doesn't necessarily go cage but he has those little elements and i'm going to say i'd be inclined to say yes yeah yeah, I, I think, think, I think Acid Yellow be. defeats Memphis Reigns. <laughs> For all three and a half minutes of screen it's, time, it's all it takes. the impact he it's makes. all it takes. I, yeah, I was trying to work this out beforehand in my head, and I just, I kind of saw it going this way, and I was like, oh my God. Yeah, man, I didn't really think of it till now, but yeah, it makes total sense. Yeah, Acid Yellow moves on, Memphis Reigns, see ya. Wow, what an upset. The bad man is gone. Oh man, the bad man's a gone man. Jesus. It didn't take 60 seconds, but it did take around six films. <laughs> uh, and that brings us into what we're going to be watching a little bit later today. Uh, mm. Today, we're back to an actual film of his from the same year of 2002. Uh, the same year he, he did, obviously, Sonny and Wind Talkers. This is going to be his third film and last film of the year. Uh, adaptation. Oh, okay. Yeah, that's come around fast. Yeah. So this is going to be Chris Cooper, Meryl Streep, and Nicolas Cage in uh, yeah, Spike Jones' film as well. I don't know 
anything about this. I've seen the poster and it's it's interesting looking. But uh, what with Nick Cage as a flower pot, you could say it's interesting as a flower pot. Yeah, I hope that's what he's ad- adapting to in this. This isn't something I've seen before. I can tell you now that it's a comedy and drama, which we we've seen some of our favourite Nick Cage films in 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 those. It's fairly beloved, if I'm right. I mean, it looks that way. It's got a, a staggering seven point seven out of ten. This is yeah, we're looking just shy of two hours again. But if it's good, I can I can take. We it. may well be in for a good day. We may well be. Um, let me give you a quick synopsis of this, Ben. Uh, a lovelorn screenwriter becomes desperate as he tries and fails to adapt The Orchard Thief by Suzanne Orlean for the screen. So is this... I mean, is this straight... That doesn't really thrill me, but... <laughs> straight off the back of uh, Nick Cage trying to direct a film and you could say failing. <laughs> he's now playing a desperate and failing screenwriter. He's just determined to be every spot in the industry. Type cast again. <laughs> we didn't really bring it up, but on the back of that and Nick Cage touring the industry, this was, I believe, the first production by Saturn Productions, which is the production company, how many times I just said that word, studio that he runs. Yes. And I was looking at the headquarters of on Google Maps earlier on. Ah. He actually, they go on to do a few things. And definitely, latterly, there's a film currently in development, which annoyingly I forgot the name of. It's called something like Magic Mix Wonder Emporium. It's not that. But it's a film in which stars Nick Cage as a janitor. And he has to spend the the night there, but all of the animatronics come to life and try to kill him. And he has to fight them off one by one. So I'm looking at um, the films that came out through Saturn Films. Oh wow, there's a there's a few. Yeah. I mean both National Treasures came out through Saturn. So he had his he had his hand in that. Uh, Lord of War came out through that. Uh we got uh but then there's some other ones that we're gonna like the Wicker Man came out through that, Knowing came out through that, Drive Angry, Bangkok Dangerous. Yeah. Well, I think uh, producing is essentially helping to bankroll and I think Nick Cage has a lot of money, so he helps get his films made and latterly some of the more dodgy ones he's done. It explains a lot. Who who else would put the money forward to make some of these films but the man himself? So you know, it's also the untitled Joe Exotic series is coming out via Saturn. Of course. Yep. Fantastic. Interestingly enough, and I want to pat myself on the back here, when I was editing an episode that we did uh, last week or so, I actually compare Nick Cage to Joe Exotic, uh, and this is a couple of days before the news came out. So, Do you think that maybe uh, maybe when the mandolin was destroyed... We all gained a bit of that mandolin. <laughs> shit, no. Wow, he's really rubbing off on me in so far. Oh, shit, I can't believe he's I didn't really... really rubbing one off on you. Stop that. <laughs> I can't believe I didn't say this, and I kind of want this to be my final thought um, on this. There are quite a few points during Sunny in which James Franco really displays some genuinely good cage rage, and we know off the back of Wind Talk, because we, we watched yesterday, sorry, day before yesterday, recently, <laughs> that he has harnessed his powers well enough that he can manifest them in other people on screen. So I think it made sense that he went on to directing because he's learned that he can he can make Nick Cage young again, effectively, vicariously through other people on screen. Uh, and I thought that was fascinating. It's just bolstering my theory. Yeah, I mean, this this theory just keeps growing and it keeps getting better and better. It feels like, the, like I, I think I said about it the last couple of days, the more we find out, the less work we have to do into it. It kind of just writes itself at this point. Yeah. Yeah, fantastic. And I think that's how I would like to be nice to Nikki today. I'd say, you've mastered your powers and you're showcasing them more in the public domain and I respect it. I didn't even consider being nice to Nikki. Oh, God. Yeah, I'm afraid you got yeah. it to round off on a positive note on what's ended up being this bumper edition of the show. Well, um, yeah, it's your directing debut and, you know, you did it. <laughs> Could have been worse. 
Oh, hang on a minute. Let's say, and I may be slightly feeding you here, but did Nick do better than his brother Oh, in directing a film? Yes and no. Oh, okay. Because Can you elaborate on that a little bit before we round off? He definitely directs a better film. He doesn't make a more memorable film. Ah, uh, yeah, okay, yeah, okay. I don't know. I, I feel like that is so iconic that he never had to make anything again, whereas Nick, we know that Nick goes on to do nothing from this, so it's not even like he learns and grows from it. It's just one and done. This is it. He just ticks it off his list. And I wonder if this felt like enough for him. But um, I would like to be nice to Nicky and say that I think this is, uh, as far as directing debuts go... This is one of the better ones I've seen. Like, you know, this is not yeah. a fantastically directed film, but when you consider it a debut, it really is great. I'd like to close off, if you don't mind, with a quote that I found from Nick. Yes, please. I found that uh, when talking about his previous films and how he, lo- he views them now, or as we'll learn here, doesn't view them. I don't watch my movies. I watch them once when they get launched, like the birth of a child, and then I don't look at them again. <laughs> Like my child. Like his child. <laughs> Poor Westerns. Poor Cal uh, It's one of these things where I was watching this as part of a video thing and I had to go back and watch it so many times because you can kind of tell like he's tried to make this really kind of poignant thing and make it really like artistic and brilliant and then realises what he said. <laughs> it's just... Uh-oh. and how it's being perceived and then like everyone laughs and he makes this it, it's really funny and he makes a good joke out of it but it was just one of those moments where I'd, I lost it I wonder if he looks at Weston when he stars alongside him in some of the films we have coming up or if he refuses to just go, oh, I'm never going to look at this also sorry I keep coming back I keep trying to close this and bring it back but just to close the the thought on Nick Cage living vicariously through James Franco in this, we see James Franco eat on screen and it's something Nick could never do. So I feel like that was a big reason why he did this. Two days in a row, the student becomes the master. <laughs> <laughs> Daniel, thank you for your time. A pleasure yeah, as always. I'll catch you a little bit later on and we'll try and go for adaption. Nick, we'll see you very shortly. Yep. Not too soon. And like we say every day on the show, despite all my rage, I'm still hanging out with the See ya. See ya. Oh, you made it to the bit after the music at the end. Look at you. Here's a quick note just to say that we do have uncaged merch available now. We've got sticker packs, there's four great designs, two of which are shiny, and all of the money raised is going to a really important charity called Sari. The link to where you can get them is in the episode description. That's it. Now go about your business.